Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club of California. Good evening, and welcome to tonight's program hosted by the Markala Center for Applied Ethics, by Technology for Global Security, and by the Commonwealth Club Silicon Valley. My name is Kirk Hansen. It is my pleasure to introduce tonight's guest speakers. Dr. Jeffrey Lewis is the director of the East Asian Nonproliferation Program for the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies of the Middlebury Institute for International Studies at Monterey. Previously, Dr. Lewis was the director of the Nuclear Strategy and Nonproliferation Initiative at the New America Foundation and executive director of the Managing the Atom Project at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. Kathleen Stevens is the former United States ambassador to the Republic of Korea and a William J. Perry Fellow at the Walter Shorenstein Asia-Pacific Research Center at Stanford. Her diplomatic career includes serving as the Director of European Affairs during the Clinton administration and Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs responsible for post-conflict issues in the Balkans. Kathleen has also held several overseas positions in Belfast, Northern Ireland, and in India. The Honorable William Perry is the former United States Secretary of Defense and co-director of the Nuclear Risk Reduction Initiative and the Preventative Defense Project at Stanford University. As Secretary of Defense, Dr. Perry was instrumental in securing nuclear stockpiles by former Soviet states and presiding over the dismantling of more than 8,000 nuclear weapons. He is a member of the National Security Project and in 2013 founded the William J. Perry Project. Dr. Perry currently serves on the Defense Policy Board, the International Security Advisory Board, and the Secretary of Energy Advisory Board. Moderating our panel is Dr. Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California. Previously, Gloria served as United States Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense and Special Coordinator for Cooperative Threat Reduction. She also worked at the RAND Corporation, the Plowshares Fund, Global Outlook, and was a visiting scholar at the Center for International Security and Cooperation. Ladies and gentlemen, join me in welcoming Jeffrey Lewis, Kathleen Stevens, the Honorable William Perry, and Dr. Gloria Duffy. Thank you, Kirk. Are, are, we, are you hearing us? No? Yes? No? Anything coming? Mic check? Are we supposed to turn anything on here? Hello? Hello? Oh, there we go. Thank you. And thank you, Kirk. It's always a pleasure to be here. Kirk is such a great leader in thinking about ethics, so such an important foundation for all we do in our society. The Commonwealth Club is very proud and happy to be co-sponsoring tonight. 
Well, we're going to talk about one of the thorniest problems in international policy and American diplomacy, uh, which confronts us at a time when our capacity for problem-solving is not as high or as effective as it's been at other periods in our history. It's a problem that has become more dramatic and more threatening with the continued development of nuclear weapons capabilities by the North Korean regime. Most uh, recently, uh, intercontinental ballistic missile capabilities that have uh, increased. We're going to start this off, and we have three terrific scholars and practitioners here to lead us in our discussion. Uh, I, we're going to start off by having Dr. Perry, uh, my glorious leader, uh, in uh, the sense of a career mentor and uh, with his leadership of our country, uh, talk for about five minutes about the North Korea problem, uh, his thoughts, his experiences in dealing with it. Then we're going to ask the other two panelists to comment and uh, chime in and get a discussion going. We very much welcome your questions, so please write them down, send them up to us, and uh, let's get going. Dr. Perry. Thank you. Can you hear me? I'm going to share with you what I believe to be true about the North Korean nuclear program. It serves as a frame of reference for my thinking, and it might be useful as a frame of reference for your own thinking. Now, first of all, I believe they have about 20 to 30 nuclear weapons, a few of them thermonuclear weapons. These are capable of being mounted on missiles that are able to reach all of South Korea and Japan. That's what I believe, number one. Secondly, I believe the reason, the purpose for these missiles, it's important to get the purpose because North Korea is a poor country and they have sacrificed greatly to get these. Why did they do it? They did it because they want to keep the regime in power. They want to sustain the Kim dynasty. That is their overriding motivation, in my judgment, for putting all that energy into making these nuclear weapons. This regime is ruthless, it's reckless, but it is not suicidal. The leaders are not seeking martyrdom. This is not ISIL. This is not al-Qaeda. They're not seeking martyrdom. They're seeking to stay in power. And so for that reason, I believe they will use these nuclear weapons. I mean, these weapons are only useful to them if they do not use them. If they use them, they will do it only in response to some sort of a situation which threatens their survivability. The most obvious one being a military attack by the United States, or even in their judgment that they're about to get a military attack by the United States. If they use these missiles, if they use them, they can destroy Seoul, they can destroy Tokyo, and they can destroy other cities in Japan and South Korea. We're talking about millions, millions of deaths. So we need to keep that in perspective. This is not a minor issue. We're talking about millions of fatalities at stake here. And finally, what influences my thinking on this, we can certainly avenge Japan and South Korea if that happens, but we cannot defend them. We cannot defend them. We must keep that clearly in mind. We can avenge them by destroying North Korea. We can add another million or two deaths to the list. But we cannot defend them. And therefore, it seems to me that our overriding policy ought to weigh 
find a way of preventing that catastrophe from happening. That's my basic opening statement about which we can, we can, um, and if you have any, if you'd like to take issue with any of those statements. For example, if you'd like to take issue with my statement that we cannot defend South Korea and Japan, I would like you to ask me the question. I'll be happy to debate that as long as you care to discuss it. Ambassador uh, Stevens, would you like to respond? Well, thank you. It's an honor to, uh, and also a burden to be uh, sitting uh, as the William J. Perry Fellow beside <laughs> <laughs> the Honorable William J. Perry. So first of all, I have to say, I think you've set out the terms I of reference I hope someday I can be well. the Kathleen Stevens Fellow. <laughs> we won't wait for that day. Thank you. Um, but I think your frame of reference uh, starts the, the, the discussion very well. Uh, I, I would just add to it, uh, in thinking about North Korea, the Kim regime's uh, motivations in uh, having this nuclear weapons program, which Kim Jong-un, the third of the Kim dynasty, has really doubled down on. Um, yes, I think it's regime survival, and they see it as perhaps a rational choice. You know, sometimes we talk about yes. North Korea's irrational, uh, a rational, maybe not a very ethical choice, but a rational choice in, a, in an asymmetrical and very insecure world uh, that they look out at, as South Korea has surpassed it in so many ways, uh, as it continues to... to, to face what it views as an existential, existential threat from the United States, I think it's also become increasingly important for the regime's domestic legitimacy. What else have they done? Look at South Korea. They've fallen behind in every way, but they have nuclear weapons. And if you see the internal propaganda, uh, you see the emphasis that the regime has put on as a source of domestic le- legitimacy. And finally, I think there is a danger in it that uh, they may seek to use it, and there's much speculation about this, to just the threat of it to kind of drive a wedge uh, between the United States and its allies in Seoul and Tokyo uh, with the notion, which I think is misplaced, but with the notion if they have the at least the theoretical ability to hit the United States, uh, they might be able to undermine uh, the uh, commitment, uh, the extended deterrence, the extended commitment to our allies, our treaty allies in, uh, in Northeast Asia. Uh, so I agree. I, I, I don't think that uh, they're looking for war. I do worry about escalation. I worry about miscalculation. And I think we have to look at some of the uh, uh, approaches that, that you work so hard on of deterrence, uh, of transparency, and of a path to, to, to greater uh, negotiations and dialogue. Dr. Lewis. Well, I don't want to make a, a, a long intervention at this point, but I, I will say the work that we do at the Middlebury Institute is essentially trying to read everything the North Koreans write and look at everything they do and, and in order to understand what their nuclear doctrine is. And so, uh, you know, we look very carefully at their propaganda. We model all of their missiles. We model all of their facilities. Every time Kim Jong-un, their leader, appears in the press, we pinpoint where he goes. We spend, I think, thousands of hours looking at this problem, basically to conclude that Dr. Perry's right, right? Um, so not clear our funders would be so delighted at, at how much work it, it takes to get us there. Uh, but I do think that, that the way that Dr. Perry framed the situation is, is the correct one, which is that North Korea does not have these nuclear weapons because it intends to start a nuclear war tomorrow. But I, I think the Kim family is terrified that uh, Kim Jong-un will end up like Saddam or Muammar Gaddafi. And, and the thing I do worry about is very early in a war, I think North Korea would use its nuclear weapons in an effort to try to stave off an attack. And so while I don't think there's much chance of a a deliberate war, I I do worry that we may blunder into one, and we can talk about that. Uh, 
So on that point, what's the fulcrum for U.S. behavior, behavior by the U.S. that could make it more likely that North Korea will use its nuclear weapons, behavior that would make it less likely? What are our do's and don'ts to not have a negative impact in this situation? Well, one thing we should not be doing is making reckless threats to North Korea. (laughs) That... It's not only bad diplomacy, I worry more profoundly that if they really believe that we're about to make a decapitating strike on them, that might stimulate them to do the very thing we're trying to prevent. So no doubt we're making those threats because we want to intimidate them. I'm afraid it will have exactly the opposite reaction. So I think threats are a very, very bad idea. Others? Well, indeed, I agree with that. And uh, what we uh, have, have learned is, is that the North Koreans have been very puzzled by uh, the language coming out of our president and, and uh, in particular what he said, at the, uh, not only in the tweets, which are so infamous, but uh, at the U.N. Security Council, uh, or, sorry, at the U.N. General Assembly, where uh, he made a speech in which he threatened the, uh, the complete destruction of North Korea. This was new language, and doing it uh, at the U.N. Security Council uh, was really, I think, clearly shocking uh, to the North Koreans, uh, but did not, in a sense, I, I'm not sure what behavior it was meant to evoke, but it's, uh, it's made the, the situation uh, much less stable, I would say, and uh, made it much more difficult to move towards the kind of clarity of deterrence and defense we need. The other thing I, I would add is we need to assure our allies, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the importance of our alliance relationships. And here I'd have to be, a, I'm, sorry, just, I'm sorry to say, a bit critical of the approach, which is to, uh, especially on the eve of a, uh, the first presidential trip to Asia, but over the last few weeks, to, uh, uh, to threaten to walk away from the uh, free trade agreement with South Korea, to talk about uh, the South Koreans' uh, approach of so-called appeasement. Uh, so it's, it's created great worries and also uh, uh, some talk now, more than some talk in South Korea and indeed even in Japan of moving to a, a nuclear option itself if it feels like its uh, ties with the United States are less than ironclad. You know, I, I am really struck by the particularly personal tone uh, that the president has struck, uh, particularly referring to Kim Jong-un as a little rocket man and, and things like that. Um, because, I, you know, when we talk about the the dynamic that's at play. Um, I think it's very hard, given the personalist nature of the North Korean regime, for the North Koreans to let slights and insults like that pass. Um, And I think after the speech at the United Nations, one thing we saw, which was very unusual, I have never seen it in my entire life, a, a statement released in the name of the North Korean leader. Normally they launder those statements through various bodies. And um, you know, this statement was very direct. Um, it said something slightly amusing, which was it was sort of one thing for the president to uh, make those comments extemporaneously, but to do so in a prepared fashion. You know, it's, it's, it's like it's fine for the president to do it off the cuff, but if the staff is writing that down, that's a problem. Uh, and, and so one of the things that we saw, I think, in response to that is a very direct threat by the North Koreans to put a live nuclear warhead on a missile and fire it over Japan and into the ocean. Uh, and so... You know, I'm, I'm quite worried about the personal tone um, that's being taken and, and the degree to which that backs the North Koreans into a corner where they feel the need to engage in provocations to show that they're not intimidated. Ambassador Stevens, um, 
North Korea is one of the last hidden kingdoms, essentially, or hidden countries. Uh, very few of us have been there, although the Commonwealth Club did have a trip a couple of years ago. It was an interesting adventure for those who went. Uh, what is it like, and how do you, wh- who is Kim Jong-un, and what, you know, what kind of a person is it, what kind of a regime is it, what is the society like, what can you tell us about North Korea? Gosh, well, I, I don't claim to be an expert and have deep insights into North Korea. It is a very challenging task for all of us who look at North Korea, uh, including South Korean analysts, but also those within the United States. Um, it is certainly an anomaly in the region and has become more so with every passing decade and every passing year. So isolated, but and a survivor. So I'd say first and foremost, we have to remember it's a survivor. It's a, uh, it's, it's, it's not collapsed uh, despite many, many predictions that it would in the 1990s and even uh, uh, more recently. It is now in its third generation of leadership. And I think we do have to look at the leadership as something of a, a dynasty, of something that draws from Korean dynastic traditions, Japanese imperialism, Stalinism. It doesn't call itself a communist country anymore, but it does. It has uh, enshrined its uh, nuclear capability within its constitutions. And I think, as Secretary Perry said, I think it is all about the regime survival of a, uh, of a regime that draws its legitimacy from the fact that it has stood up to the Americans, it stood up to the world, it stood up to China, and retained its independence, and that that kind of internal propaganda, while I think people, and when you talk to defectors and others, they, you know, they, they understand that this is not the whole story. Information has seeped in, in a way. Uh, they understand that uh, South Korea is richer, that certainly China is richer, even Northeast China is much, much richer. But still, I think there's a sense that, one, it's a totalitarian regime where, as we've seen, Kim Jong-un, as he has consolidated power, has not hesitated to, uh, to enlist, I mean, the most brutal of means to ensure that he uh, stays in power, uh, but also one where uh, these kinds of controls, combined with a sense of nationalism, uh, has given the regime a, a lease on life. I also, final thing, I would add that over the last five years, this young leader, Kim Jong-un, has actually allowed uh, more market activity. And starting from a very low base, there's been economic growth in North Korea. So again, it's just a reminder to us that there's a great brittleness there. And I'm not predicting, and I hope that this regime does not last forever, but it would be a mistake not to recognize its resilience and its adaptability. So no regime change is likely in the near future crumbling from within in North Korea. I, I, I certainly think it's impossible to predict that. Um, I, I hope that we can shape North Korea's choices, uh, and I think that's the, that's the stated aim, including of the Trump administration sanctions, I mean, at least by the people around the president, uh, that, uh, uh, that perhaps this is a leader that can be persuaded to take a different path. I, need, I think we need to keep testing that. If that pressure leads to some kind of pressure within the regime and some kind of change, uh, that would be something that, again, would bring both opportunity and, and some dangers. Dr. Perry, from the military technology standpoint, what can we do and should we be doing to protect ourselves and our allies in the region militarily from the threat from North Korea? Uh, regional missile defense, what, are, what should we be doing as our fail-safe the first thing we have to do, from a military point of view, is make sure that our deterrence is, air to, is, is bulletproof. 
And I believe it is. What does that mean? <laughs> that means that there can be no doubt that the deterrence is not only available, but from the point of view of the South Koreans and the Japanese, that we will use it if needed. There's some, I think, deliberate activity on the way of North Korea right now to try to drive a wedge between the United States and South Korea and Japan. Jeffrey already mentioned that, and I think it's a very important point. Their means of driving the wedge, we'd have an ICBM, which they have not perfected yet, but they'll get there. They'll get there. And then they can point out to the Japanese and the South Koreans that we wouldn't honor our deterrence because we'd be afraid of a nuclear bomb landing in Santa Clara, say. Not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> I must tell you one anecdote. The last time I was negotiating with North Koreans was I was in Pyongyang. I was negotiating with a North Korean general. And the first thing he said to me when he came in the room, shook hands, he said, I'm so into it. He said, this meeting was not my idea. I was directed to meet with you. I don't think we should even be talking about giving up nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. So I quite logically said to him, why do you care so much about having nuclear weapons? Why is it so important to you? He said, for our security, to defend ourselves. So I said, from whom? And he looked at me incredulously and said, from you. <laughs> and then he went on to say, if... The United States attacks us. You will find nuclear bombs landing on your cities the next day. Pause. Not excluding Palo Alto. <laughs> He'd done his research and learned that I lived in Palo Alto. <laughs> what about uh, the THAAD system? Uh, high altitude, theater high altitude missile defense. <laughs> Uh, the best thing we can say about our air defense systems is a, in peacetime at least, they make feel, people feel a little more secure. They're a psychological defense. But in terms of actually saving soul, saving attack, it's not really feasible. Some people have criticized our defense systems by saying, the tests haven't been satisfactory. They don't work as they advertise. But my point is, even if they work exactly as advertised, they cannot defend Seoul. Any missile defense system, regardless of the design, is subject to saturation. That is, mm. the opponent firing more missiles than we have anti-missile systems. And the North Koreans have well over 100 missiles. They, they don't all have to have nuclear weapons in. From the defense system point of view, there'll be missiles coming into Seoul. Beyond that, you can multiply your missiles by a factor of 10 or 100 by putting up decoys. And if there's anybody in the audience that thinks no North Korea is not sophisticated enough or smart enough to put decoys on the missiles, I point out to you they've developed a thermonuclear bomb. They're very technically sophisticated. So you can count on their missiles having decoys. So to think that we could defend Seoul or defend Tokyo with the systems we have over there, with two or three times as many systems we have over there, is a dangerous delusion. Elsewhere in the region, 
shifts are going on in response to the growing nuclear program of North Korea. In what countries are we seeing different policy directions? Japan, amendments to the Japanese constitution, uh, permitting more uh, more uh, ability of the Japanese government uh, in war, war powers and so on. Uh, where, where are the effects being seen in the region? Uh, well, I think uh, in Japan, it just had an election last Sunday. That would be the, mo- the most obvious place to say uh, there's been a pretty direct impact on the politics. Now, the, the Sunday election was one called by the sitting prime minister, Mr. Abe. Uh, but he rather explicitly called it because he felt that his position in that parliamentary system had been strengthened, frankly, by the fact that there was much greater anxiety and worry on the part of the Japanese population about the North Korean threat, given, in particular, the traje- trajectory of recent missile tests. And uh, he turned out to be right. Uh, he, uh, he won a, a, against very weak or practically no opposition, uh, but a resounding mandate. And he's made clear that he would like to see Japan continue on the path of moving towards a stronger and more capable and and more active uh, military presence in the region. Uh, Some of that has to do with the rise of China, but certainly the the immediate and proximate challenge, as he sees it, is, is, is North Korea. I think they're still relatively ambiguous at best support among the Japanese population for that and, uh, and, and a great deal of, of ambivalence or even outright uh, opposition to the notion of Japan developing its own nuclear capability. But I think we will see much stronger, oh, it already is close, but much closer military cooperation between the United States and Japan. In South Korea, there's a new president who has, uh, uh, has come to power earlier this year after a very dramatic year in South Korea that didn't get so much attention, given all the attention to North Korea. Uh, and he came to power wanting to find some way to uh, engage uh, with North Korea. He comes from that kind of political tradition. But he also comes with a mandate, as every South Korean president has, to, to work closely with uh, the United States. And in President Trump, you know, he has his hands full. Uh, uh, they have not established the kind of relationship so far that Mr. Abe and Mr. Trump have. So uh, this upcoming trip where Mr. Trump will be going to Japan, Korea, and on to China and elsewhere, I think is very important in terms of that relationship building, uh, as well as Mr. Moon demonstrating to his own public One, many of whom would like to see South Korea now develop its own nuclear weapons because they now see, well, maybe we should have them so we can go to the table with North Korea and start to bargain. Uh, But uh, two, those who say, we're being passed by. There's an expression you'll see in the the South Korean press called uh, uh, Seoul passing or Korea passing. Who's going to be the host for this little war that might happen if you read the the tweets from Seoul? It's the Korean Peninsula, and since we're talking about ethics and morals, with 55 million people in the south and 25 million people in the north, it's very real. And even if it's not nuclear weapons, as uh, as Secretary Perry indicated, we're talking about uh, a highly militarized environment and a highly urbanized environment, so certainly much higher tensions. Uh, China will be very interesting to see. I... uh, I think that President Trump Trump clearly uh, thought that he could get China to do more. He wasn't the first one to think it, uh, nor the last one maybe to find out. It's not that simple, Uh, but I think it will definitely be very much on the agenda in the coming week. Thank you. Dr. Lewis. Well, you know, one thing I think is so interesting is that President Moon came into office very much wanting uh, to negotiate with North Korea and open up dialogue. 
And in the wake of the way that tensions have played out, one thing that he has done is uh, made a very public show of attending missile tests in South Korea. Mm. Uh, and previously, you know, we, we don't often talk about South Korea's missiles. Right? We talk about North Korea's missiles because we're worried about them as a threat. Um, but one of those things that you know, our students, as they're going through and, and staring at satellite photographs, have, have picked out is a very large South Korean conventional missile capability, which you know, I think is intended in a crisis to kill Kim Jong-un before he can give the order to use nuclear weapons. Uh, and so to see President Moon making such a show, um, and in fact, the, for the last North Korean missile test, the South Koreans put out their own missiles, so as soon as the North Korean missile test could happen, they could respond with their own missile test. Um, you know, I think we are at risk of having this kind of situation where even though you have a progressive president who says he's committed to dialogue, um, you have these two war plans, right, where the North Koreans think that they're going to go first, and I think we think we're going to go first, and I think the South Koreans think they're going to go first, and two of us are wrong about that. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Listen to thousands of our podcasts on iTunes or Google Play. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 450 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. And now, back to our program. Dr. Perry, why did yours and Bill Clinton's North Korea nuclear deal fail? Why is this not mentioned more in the media? That's a question from the audience. So you, I missed the question. You negotiated, the, uh, and your colleagues, sort of the last successful agreement with North Korea, uh, staving off their nuclear program. What happened to that agreement? How did that dissolve? And what can we learn from that? Um, that agreement was um, made in, verbally in 1999 when I visited Pyongyang. It entailed North Korea giving up their nuclear program and their long-range missile program, in return for which Japan and South Korea made certain economic benefits, which were interesting to the North Koreans, but not persuasive. What was persuasive to them what the United States offered. And I think this was very instructive. We offered basically international respect. We offered to open an embassy in Pyongyang. We offered to sign an agreement to end the Korean War, which still hasn't been ended. Uh, and we offered to give them security assurances. All of these things didn't cost us a nickel, really. It was just something we were all promised to do. But of all the things we discussed with them, those were the things that grabbed their attention the most. Those were the things they kept coming back to and wanted to elaborate on and discuss. So that's something I learned from talking with them, that they valued very highly their assurance, their security, and they valued very highly international recognition and respect. And we offered them a way of getting those two things without nuclear weapons. And they got the economic benefits from South Korea and Japan into the bargain. Uh, Kim Jong-il, who was then the leader, 
sent his top military man to Washington to negotiate. By the way, he stopped on the way. He told him to stop at Stanford and visit me and have me show him some things around Silicon Valley, which I, which I did. I took him to companies that I knew were run and in many cases owned by Korean-Americans who could talk to him in Korean and could also demonstrate what, how well Koreans were doing here in the United States. And then we went back to, to Washington. Uh, he had a, a pretty much a final agreement with Secretary Albright and with uh, the President Clinton. This happened on a very important date. It was October of 2000. That date's important because one month later was something called an election in the United States, and the Clinton administration was voted out of office. That is, Al Gore was not. The incoming Secretary of State, Colin Powell, said not to worry. We will follow through on this agreement and get it signed. But he was overridden two months later by the President Bush, I believe, at the instigation, the recommendation, Vice President Cheney is the way I understand it. And for two years after that, we had no discussions, no negotiations at all with North Korea. And I say the rest is history. We could have had the agreement then. I would be the first to say that it would have been a difficult treaty to hold them to it, to monitor them, to keep, make sure they, because they, we know they cheated on the previous agreement with us. We thought we had pretty good provision in place for doing that, but you can never be sure. It would have been, at best, it would have been, I mean, at worst, it would have been a lot better off than we are today. At minimum, it would have held off the nuclear program perhaps by about 10 years. But President Bush made a conscious decision to stop that discussion, not go ahead with the agreement, and furthermore, stop all, all negotiations with the North. They believed that a better approach was, the, was to work for regime change. Now, I, nobody tops my view in believing that that regime ought to be changed. I would have welcomed that move if they knew how to do it. It was a good idea, but they didn't know how to do it. And they, in fact, they could not do it. And so not being able to execute regime change, we're stuck with no regime change and no treaty. And what we get is a nuclear program we have today. I'm giving you a per personal one-sided view of that story. If you had Dick Cheney on the stage, he would give you a different view, I'm sure. <laughs> but that was my view of it. Other comments? Well, I was, I, I'm really, I don't know if you would feel this way. I'm reminded by this uh, sad history, in a way, uh, in looking at what's happened with the Iran deal, you know, in the sense that, I mean, I came out of 35 years as a diplomat, and, and it really is one of those professions where, you know, the perfect really can be the enemy of the good. And, uh, I mean, agreements like the agreement that uh, we had in the 1990s was not a perfect agreement. Um, it didn't deal with missiles. We were getting to that, working on it. But it was, it was the framework in which we could operate and in which the, 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 the nuclear program had been frozen. Uh, but uh, there was this, the, much of the criticism we hear now about the Iran deal. Well, you know, they may be abiding by the letter of it, but not the spirit. Well, the spirit's kind of in the in the eye of the beholder, in a way. And, uh, and, and I think that's what 
started to happen, along with people who mm-hmm. really did want regime change and thought, as some people think now, we shouldn't have a deal with Iran because they're bad people. They may be bad, but you know, the agreement was serving our, pur- our purposes I th- it, it, then, and I think this one is now. And the other way I, I'm kind of reminded of the past here is uh, the other thing that happened, in, in, of course, in late 2001 is after 9-11, uh, President Bush gave us a State of the Union, I think the State of the Union, where he used the term axis of evil. I don't know how many of you remember that. And apparently this was just a notion that was a kind of speechwriter's, you know, term that grabbed people. And North Korea was, was put in there along with Iran, Iraq, kind of like North Korea has been put into the uh, travel ban <laughs> uh, recently. But, uh, but that landed, I better be careful about my metaphors here, but that landed very heavily in Pyongyang. And they concluded not not irrationally, that uh, if, if it was Iraq, Iran, and North Korea, that they better get ready for some kind of military action. Uh, and I, I think, again, we see now with, with the rhetoric we've used that uh, we've also alarmed uh, Pyongyang and maybe led to some uh, misapprehension about what our overall policy is. Because when we talk about our overall policy now about North Korea, it doesn't seem to be regime change. Uh, but they hear words that certainly sound like it. As somebody who spends as much time looking at Iran's uh, missile and, and nuclear energy capabilities as I do at North Korea's, I mean, the, the, these two stories seem to run in parallel. And I, I'm always left with the depressing thought that if you like North Korea's nuclear-armed ICBM, you're, you're going to love walking away from the Iran deal. Um, you know, I am someone who thinks that it's very unlikely now that North Korea will give up its nuclear weapons. Uh, but I, I say that as someone who believes that the Clinton administration had a solution. Uh, and it was a good solution. It was a workable solution. I, you know, Dr. Perry is, is underselling his role. It, that, that agreement, which the, the initial agreement was signed in 1994 and came under quite uh, considerable opposition in the United States and, and some concerns about what North Korea was doing. And, and Dr. Perry played a, a central role in creating the process that led to the agreement um, that he described. And I think if it... If it weren't for the uh, tremendous respect um, that people had for him, I don't think it would have been possible. Uh, so as somebody who's very sad about, I think, the seemingly impossible task of getting North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons, I, I think the lesson we should draw from that is that when we have opportunities, um, that we need to take them. So let's talk about the future and potential solutions or positive steps we can take. I guess we've all concluded rhetoric is not a great thing in a context like this. Uh, regime, regime change, and I'm, we're speaking within the framework of applied ethics tonight. This is one of those situations with the ethics of uh, millions of people having a terrible life versus the threat of nuclear war, no good solutions in terms of uh, balancing those ethical questions. But I'm assuming no one here thinks that promoting regime change at this point is a prudent thing to do. I mean, I, I would say quite the contrary. I mean, the reason that North Korea has nuclear weapons mm. is that it fears regime change. Mm. Uh, and so I think that as long as that is a consistent part of the way we talk about that government, um, it will be quite hard to persuade them to live without them. I, there's a, there's a, a, a funny story. The you know, the, the Bush administration, which, which walked away from these agreements, um, I don't think they'll ever admit it, but I think they know they made a mistake. And they, they tried actually quite hard, and I yeah. think quite sincerely, um, to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. 
And um, they had a very good idea, although in, in retrospect, perhaps we'll, we'll have a grim laugh. Um, after Iraq, they, they weren't sure how you could convey to the North Koreans um, that we would keep our word. And, and so the, the solution that uh, Condoleezza Rice's State Department hit upon was to go to the North Koreans and say, well, talk to Muammar Gaddafi, <laughs> because he disarmed, and he will tell you that we keep our end of the deal. Um, and I, I think it was the right thing to do at the time, but of course, as things have turned out, um, it's not the world's greatest advertisement for cutting a deal. Is there anything we should be doing positively, perhaps, through back channels, working with South Korea, to move that regime in a more positive direction as, as a leadership and as a society? What can we do? Um, Gloria, I think the first thing we have to do is lower our expectations. What I could negotiate in 1999, we cannot now negotiate. Um, then I was asking them not to pursue a nuclear program, which they couldn't have known was going to be successful. So that was an easier, easier to get. Now, today, we have to get them to agree to give up a nuclear program they already have and already tested, and they already know it works. They already have gotten huge international recognition. In fact, they've already gotten huge leverage on what they're trying to do. So why would they give it up? Uh, I wouldn't try to do that negotiation today. The best we could do, I believe, is an agreement to get them to cease testing the nuclear weapons and cease testing the long-range missiles. One good bit of news about that is that it's worth having. It's, it's, it's an agreement worth having. But secondly, it would be very easy to verify we don't, we're not there, we wouldn't have the cheating specter that we have on some of the other agreements. Then if we could get that, then that would be a platform which, which, which we could start year after year to try to get a rollback for various sort of incentives. So I think that's what I would try to do right now. But even to do that, I think we have China. And I don't mean us pointing to China and say, you solve the problem, and China pointing to us and say, you solve the problem. But I mean getting together with China as a partner. So before I wanted to talk to, went to Pyongyang to talk to them, I'd first go to Beijing and see if we can come to an agreement about what we can do, what we think the threat is, and what we think we can do about it. China has to be worried about the North Korean nuclear program, uh, even setting aside the fact that those missiles can reach Beijing as well as they can reach Tokyo. Setting that aside, they understand that it's, it's inspiring South Korea and Japan to want to go nuclear. That cannot be a good thing for China. So they don't want that to happen. And they also understand there could lead to a war, and they don't want a war to happen over there. So we have a lot going with us for China now if we can only find the right approach to them. And I think the approach has to start off with our agreeing not to take advantage of the situation if North Korea collapses. Because the last thing they want is a unified Korea with American troops on their border. So we'd have to be able to tell them something like, if North Korea collapses, after all, the reason we have troops in South Korea is to protect them from North Korea. So if North Korea collapses, we would be prepared to discuss pulling our troops completely out of Korea. And I think that would be welcome in the United States and would certainly be welcome in Beijing. Might even be welcome in Seoul also. <laughs> I mean, if I could just add, I mean, I certainly agree. It's, and it's obviously, it's infinitely more challenging now than it was 
10 years ago or 20 years ago. And uh, uh, while uh, I and all, all of us have, have been quite critical of the rhetorical approach, particularly the president has taken, uh, I think that the, the outlines of the policy that at times seems to be pursued by this administration has recognized how challenging it is. And, and I, I actually kind of like the bumper sticker of ma- maximum pressure, pressure, maximum engagement. I do think pressure has to be a part of it, uh, that there has to be uh, uh, consequences for the testing that's gone on. And uh, the Trump administration has been relatively successful, quite successful, in getting China to sign up to some Security Council resolutions to do some other things to bring the pressure on. But their rhetoric, I mean, and from Secretary Tillis, from Secretary Mattis, from Mr. Dunford, General Dunford, has been, uh, we do not, and this was something was said earlier, too, we don't want to bring you to your knees. We want to bring you to the table. But the question is, when do you pivot to maximum engagement? And how do you do that if, in the meantime, you have this other noise going on? So I would like to see a pivot to maximum engagement, which doesn't mean all the pressure stops immediately, but it means you, do, you have a lot to talk about, even if you have to, in a way, agree to disagree for a while. And that's the only answer I have to the question of, you know, is, no, is North Korea a nuclear weapon state or not? Uh, you know, you can, the, the, the United States, I think, has to preserve a position of saying, you know, we see that you have these capabilities and we must deal with those. Uh, and North Korea will insist they be recognized. But you set those aside, and you, you have talks about talks. You have talks about deterrence. Uh, you, and, and you have a recognition that the timeline, I think, on the U.S. side, the timeline for getting where we hopefully would get many years ago is much, much longer and much different. And it is because of where they are with their program and because of the absence of trust and confidence which was never strong, but has gotten, for all the reasons we've talked about, so much, uh, so much more apparent uh, in, the re- in recent years. Yeah, the, the bumper's fine. It's the driver that scares me. <laughs> <laughs> so how do we go down this path, say, towards an agreement to seize nuclear testing, trying to engage China? Who's, who's going to do this? I mean, what's the state of our State Department, our diplomacy, this administration's ability to do that, track to diplomacy? What would be the mechanisms to move down a path towards engaging North Korea again? Well, I, I think capacity is a big challenge. Uh, and uh, we, we don't have a staffed-up State Department. Uh, we have a Secretary of State who has said a lot of the right things. In fact, he, uh, a few weeks ago, talked about the four no's, you know, and this is clearly directed at the Chinese, and it was very much what you were talking about. No troops uh, north of the 38th, you know, no regime change. I mean, things to try to reassure both Pyongyang and and Beijing that we were serious. But again, we see him undercut very publicly, uh, which seems to me, well, untenable. Uh, So... Again, I think this trip coming up is going to be very important. Uh, I hope the president has a script and that he stays on it. But a lot of damage, I know, a lot of damage has been done, and I think it's going to be uh, uh, very, very difficult. Uh, the other thing I think that is, you know, even with the maximum engagement, there's also more isolation. So the kinds of even more informal, so-called, uh, you know, track two, non-government, and what, track 1.5, non-government, but somebody from official sides there from North Korea, the U.S., elsewhere, to kind of informally test each other out. Those have become much, much harder. 
so I think the trade-off between pressure and isolation has been a difficult one. So I, I think we, that's another area where there needs to be some serious thinking about what's possible, and those who perhaps still have some contacts, I mean, they really have withered away, need to hopefully get some encouragement to, uh, to re-energize them. But the Chinese don't have very good lines into Pyongyang anymore. I mean, this is a... Uh, you know, a young leader himself who has not traveled and has really not received any, has not received foreign leaders, unless you count Dennis Rodman. I mean, that's a bad joke, but I mean, no, but he hasn't met with anybody, so it's a problem. It's hard to know what the jokes are anymore. No, I, yeah. So, um, with China, what are the steps to try to engage China? So I, I wrote my dissertation on China's nuclear policies, and um, so tell us. Yeah, you know I think the Chinese can be helpful, but I think we have to be realistic about what it is they can and can't do. And I I worry that in Washington, too often, the Chinese become a convenient scapegoat or a Deus ex machina that's going to solve our problem for us. Um, and you know the the reason I, I say that is. The Chinese have a, have a very specific idea about how to influence North Korea, and it's through engaging not the regime as a whole, but by building up groups of North Koreans who are beholden to the Chinese. And in some sense, that's a very effective strategy, but it's a grim way that it's effective because we see the North Koreans then execute those people. Right? That's why Kim Jong-un had his uncle executed. You know, even in the state announcement, uh, you know, the, the crime was selling North Korea's resources uh, at, at uh, unreasonable prices to foreign powers. You know, and that, was a, that was a reference to China. And we've obviously seen his, his half-brother w- was living in Macau under Chinese protection, and the North Koreans were perfectly willing to assassinate him, and then we were just talking, which I haven't seen the report yet, but now there's been an, a, an attempt on, on his son's life. And so... While I think the Chinese have some influence, if they were all powerful, I, I think that that uh, that those people would still be alive. I would just add the other part: the Chinese have a, a sort of a three priorities, and they're they're very explicit about these, and I think have been for some years when it comes to the Korean Peninsula: uh, no war, no instability slash chaos, and no nukes. Well, and so no nukes is last, uh, and you know they, they don't want to risk instability, and I, so I think part of it is is persuading them that uh, we are not looking for instability or regime change or war, uh, and to find a way to get them in a way to trust us a little more and our intentions. So a tradition by new nuclear states is to try to monetize the product. Pro- progress they've made and sell their expertise or technology to other countries. We had Mr. A.Q. Khan in uh, Pakistan who was proliferating Pakistan's nuclear weapons knowledge and so on. Will North Korea follow this path? Who are they in touch with out there on the black market or among uh, groups or countries? We've, Dr. Lewis? We've already seen them build a covert nuclear reactor in Syria, which was explicitly for the purpose of providing Syria with a nuclear weapon. So uh, given North Korea's very robust trade in missiles and the one example we have of their perfect willingness to supply a, a nuclear reactor uh, to a state, I have 
no doubt in my mind that if the cash is there, the North Koreans will sell it. Is Sorry, there, I'm cheery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Any other thoughts on that? I think they'll be somewhat cautious. I mean, the, the plant in Syria in 2007 was destroyed by Israeli bombs, uh, uh, airstrikes. Um, I, I know that, that the, certainly the message has been delivered to them over the years that, I mean, you know, you've got to be careful about red lines, but the proliferating, and particularly to pro- the problematical countries and groups, would be, um, would be a red line. Uh, I, I don't know of recent evidence, but, uh, but yes, they, they certainly have, have traded in it and shared technology as well as material. There were some years ago, even in the 2000s, even after the halcyon days of the 90s when we were talking to the North Koreans, there were some track to uh, efforts going on. Uh, I remember I attended actually two sessions at the American Association for the Advancement of Science annual meetings, which talked about uh, scientific collaboration, just the very beginnings of it uh, between uh, entities in the U.S. and in North Korea. Some of it had to do with energy, some of it had to do with environment, uh, but there were actually some groups in communication, uh, scientific groups, uh, what has, is there anything there now in terms of North Korea, South Korea, North Korea, uh, U.S., uh, back-channel communications, informal, non-governmental relationships that remain and are developing or could develop? Uh, the potential for that is very high, and the in- <clears throat> interest in North Korea is very high. I don't see it happening under the present environment. Um, the Kaesong development, which Kaesong is a town just north of the border, where they have a large industrial facility, where the capital and the, and the management is supplied by South Korea, and where the land and the labor is supplied by North Korea. It's a very profitable, very successful enterprise. But that kind of, and they had plans to expand that vastly. That's all gone by the wayside in the present environment. So it's very hard for me to imagine that now. When I was negotiating with them, I didn't mention this before, but we talked about exactly the things you're discussing now, scientific arrangements, uh, helping them. They were very, very interested for reasons I'm not quite sure, and learning how to grow potatoes, and they thought we were the world's experts on that. So we were going to send potato farmers over to help them. Uh, They were very interested in things that we could do like that, that would be easy for us to do it, cheap for us to do it, and would, would not really have any downsides to it. All of that requires an environment, or a political environment, different from what we have right now. So we have to, first of all, solve the political environment. Then we can start doing things like that. And they would be very useful and very helpful. We missed a big opportunity to do that back in the year 2000. But uh, if we could ever get back to a reasonable security uh, environment again. I don't know quite how, but if we could, then that would be a very important part of it, I think. Just, I mentioned that the Commonwealth Club had had a trip to North Korea a couple years ago. Uh, this was something, I don't know if Stanford ever did uh, trips to North Korea. I know you were going to lead one at one point, Dr. Perry. Well, let, let, let me mention the one which is a little bit out of the direction of the science, but uh, the North Koreans invited the New York Philharmonic to play in their new concert hall back in 2006. Uh, 
It was a one, they invited me to go and uh, to attend. And I said I would like to, but I couldn't. My schedule didn't permit me to get there. By the way, you have to get there, which is fly to Beijing, then wait for a plane, then fly from there to Pyongyang. They said, well, we will let you cross the border and drive you up. That sounded pretty interesting to me, so I agreed. And that's what they did. We drove across the border and drove up to Pyongyang. And it was a wonderful symphony. They uh, had the American flag on stage as well as the Korean flag. They played the Star Spangled Banner as well as the Korean anthem. Uh, this, is, this is New York Philharmonic was playing. At the end of the concert, they played, uh, is Ari Yong, is that the name Ari of it? Dong, yes. Ari yes. Which is a folk song for both the North and the South about lovers that have broken apart and can't get back together. It's, it's, it's a metaphor for the split Korea. And I looked around the audience, and I saw these grizzled military men sitting near me, tears coming down their eyes. It was a very moving experience. After the performance, they got a standing ovation. I've never seen one like that. It lasted for 15 minutes until the last person in the orchestra left the stage. They were still standing and applauding. It was a wonderful, moving event. I was the only American Mm -hmm. official there. I was out of office at that time. The uh, Bush administration chose, were invited, but chose to send no one to that, which I thought was a big mistake. But in any event, that was the last time they sort of reached out in a way saying, maybe we can get together again. That was 2006, and everything from 2006 hasn't been a positive development actually since then, 2006. That wasn't in the line of science, but it's a track, two of a sorts. Mm-hmm. And it showed off, it showed to me that the North Koreans were really still thinking about becoming a, a normal country and, part, and maybe part of the world. But from that point on, they have not shown that inclination at all. I, you know, I do think it's kind of interesting that the North Koreans, you may have uh, noted, uh, over the last several weeks or last month, have invited a number of uh, uh, U.S. journalists to go to North Korea. So we've had reports in the New York Times and, I'm not, and Washington Post and a few others. And it wasn't at the normal time when foreign journalists were invited in for a party congress or a mass game or a, you know, a, a sporting event. Um, it seems that they were doing it because they actually wanted to, one, again, kind of try to get a sense of what's going on in Washington and the U.S., and two, show them a little bit. So I actually took that as... We should tell me, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, but I think it's that, that they're, they're a little bit both worried, but they also wanted to try to communicate. And it has definitely gotten more difficult. Uh, after 2010 in South Korea, most of the South Korea and North Korea uh, things were cut off, and... Uh, although the Moon Jae-in government has sought to reopen them. The North Koreans have said, uh, you know, they're pretty tough on their southern brethren, you know, and as long as you're supporting sanctions, we don't want to do it. You don't have the right attitude. And for U.S. and actually a lot of international NGOs and others who've had projects or dialogues over the years, the new sets of sanctions, although I've made clear that I do think there's there's a role for sanctions, uh, many of them, in my mind, are not, I mean, are, are, are too broad, uh, in the sense of making it almost impossible, I mean, to, to... And some of this had to do with the tragedy about a warm bear's death as well, but it's very, very difficult now for a U.S. citizen to travel to North Korea for you know, any reason short of... In fact, I think it's, it's not allowed. It's illegal short of some kind of waiver from the, uh, from the U.S. government. So, so it's, we're at a very low point, and it will be very difficult climbing back up that mountain again, but I think we need to do it. 
Time for our last question. If each of you could do one thing to improve the situation, reduce the threat from North Korea, what would you do? I don't have a good idea about what to do to really improve the relations at this stage. I'm more focused on, on a more immediate question, what can we do to prevent blundering into a nuclear war? I really am concerned about that. I think the environment we're in now is such that we could easily blunder into a military conflict. And if we got into a military conflict, I believe North Korea would then use its nuclear because they would lose a conventional nuclear conflict. I think they would then use the nuclear weapon. So what can we do to prevent that? And as it happens, there's a bill before the Congress now, submitted by, by the Conyers and Markey, mm-hmm. uh, which basically says the president will not be permitted to launch a military strike, unprovoked military strike against North Korea without getting the permission of Congress. In other words, the president will follow the Constitution. If he's going to, de- declare, if he's, if he's going to, if he's going to conduct war, he's going to go to Congress to get permission for the war, which is what the Constitution says he must do. Uh, that bill has 61 sponsors in the House right now, which is a, a lot for a bill but only two of them are Republicans. And if I know one thing for sure is that a nuclear war is not an issue that is partisan. It should not be Democrat or Republican. So if any of you want to think or you want to do something that might make a difference here, particularly if you're Republicans, is get to your right to whoever you know in the Congress and ask them to support that bill. Uh, But even if it doesn't pass, it's drawing attention to the issue, which is very important. But uh, there, there might be a possibility that could pass if there could be some groundswell of Republicans not nominated by the administration speaking up for this issue, and if some Republicans in Congress are start getting on board with this. So this is the Conyers-Markey bill, which prevents an unprovoked military strike against North Korea without going to the Congress for constitutional authority to do so. Ambassador Stevens. One thing you could do. Well, uh, I would like to try to write President Trump's speech to the South Korean National Assembly and then hope that he would stick with it. (laughs) And uh, in addition to making some of the points that my colleagues have made tonight, maybe some of mine, and and demonstrating a a solidarity with uh, uh, the people of Korea and uh, uh, the strength of our alliances... I would uh, have him call for uh, talks about talks without preconditions. Okay. Dr. Lewis. I I would say that we need to align our expectations with reality uh, and that for the foreseeable future, denuclearization is probably going to have to take a backseat to trying to reduce tension and improve the relationship. Um, But I'll leave you with a happy thought about this because, as I mentioned earlier, my doctoral research was on China's nuclear program. And I have to say, in 1964, when China tested its first nuclear weapon, that was a terrifying idea. It was terrifying to think of Mao Zedong with a nuclear capability. Um, But what we didn't know then is that the Chinese government was actually quite divided about spending the money on a nuclear capability. And it wasn't the hawks that wanted nuclear weapons. It was the doves. The doves saw nuclear weapons as an investment in the country's science and technology. And the very same people who insisted that China should develop nuclear weapons were 
absolutely essential in creating the political support uh, for the reapproachment that happened just a few years later. Um, and I often imagine, you know, if you'd gone into Lyndon Johnson's office and you said, no, 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 it's fine. Right? It's okay that China's doing this. The, the people who are doing this are going to uh, reorient China's foreign policy. Uh, and then Lyndon Johnson probably would have asked you, well, what American president are they going to do this with? And you would have said, Richard Nixon, and he would have thrown you out of the office. <laughs> so life is strange, and life can be surprising. Uh, and so even though I think it looks grim, we should be prepared uh, to seize any opportunity that we get. Thank you so much to our panelists this evening. Ambassador Kathleen Stevens, Dr. Jeffrey Lewis, and former Defense Secretary William Perry. Thanks to all of you here in the audience. You provided some great questions. I may have reworded a few of them, but I hope you heard a number of them in there. Uh, this is a terrific problem, one of the great problems of our time. So thank you all for putting your minds to a solution to this. We have been delighted to co-sponsor this evening the Commonwealth Club and the Markula Center. Uh, and uh, we adjourn this meeting now of the joint uh, parties sponsoring. Uh, and thank you all for joining us. Good night. Thank you.